A while ago, I was reading a story. Uh, many of you have heard this story. There's a missionary, very famous missionary, named Jim Elliott. Uh, Jim Elliott uh, died on the mission field. He had a wonderful passion for taking the gospel of Jesus Christ to unreached people groups. An unreached people group is a, is a group of folks who just have no access or very little access to the gospel. And Jim Elliott and his wife, they were just passionate. We want to see the gospel go to all the ends of the earth. And they had their eyes pinpointed on one very particular tribe in Ecuador. Uh, it was a completely unreached. They had had zero contact with the outside world. They essentially lived in the rainforest. I mean, in the jungle, if you will. And, uh, and he was a pilot. And so they came up with this strategy and they found a, a large open area where they thought they could land an airplane, like almost like a strip in the middle of the jungle. And uh, for over a year, they labored with a team. How can we do this? Is that landing possible? Praying fervently. And on the day they landed, the tribe that he was trying to reach came out with spears and killed the three of them, him and his two buddies who were missionaries there. Well, his wife and children were left behind. And it's, a, it's a, quite a traumatic story what happened. But in later years, uh, his wife went back to that same tribe and won them to Christ. The power of the gospel at work through the, the passion and devotion of a missionary who said, I want to go to the nations. I want to see this. It's worth it. In reflection, you know, his journals got published. Jim Elliott's journals. His private just, you know, journals, like many of you keep a journal. And he, uh, he had this one line that's kind of become a, uh, an anthem of Christianity over the years. You'll hear this from time to time. It's kind of like a bumper sticker line. But it came from Jim Elliott's pen, just in the privacy of his bedroom, journaling. And he wrote this. He said, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. You look at the life of a man like Jim Elliott and you look at the legacy of his life and you realize that those words ring very true. Our world is full of temptation. Our world is full of temptation to place an overemphasized grasp and clutching onto the things of this world that are perishing and that will fade. Those things that you can lose. And our world is full of temptation to place an, an undergrasp, like, like, like this under-leaning on, this under-prioritizing of the one thing that can never be taken from you. God, right? We, 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 we tend to prioritize all the wrong things. And when you look at your life on the whole over the long run of a, of a life, even as Christians filled by the Spirit, at times we find that we've emphasized the wrong aspects of this. But we're leaning too much into the areas where we can hold on to, and we're leaning not enough into the one thing that can never be taken away from us. One of the questions that Jim Elliott's life makes us ask is, what would you be willing to let go of in order to grasp tighter onto that which you could never lose? We all know the story of the rich young ruler in the gospel accounts. Rich young ruler comes to Jesus. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus quotes a handful of the commandments from the second table of the Ten Commandments. You know, don't steal, don't commit murder, don't commit adultery. Young man says, I've done all of those things since my youth. Jesus looks him in the eyes, says, give up all your wealth. Leave it behind. Come follow me. And the young ruler went away sad. He walked away from Christ because he couldn't let go of the things in his life that he could see in order to hold on to the one thing that he could never lose. We like to dismiss that story. Uh, we, like to, uh, we like to tell the rich young ruler story in a way that basically gets us all off the hook. And today I want to retell that story 
not necessarily directly, but I want us to consider that story in a way that places us on the hook by asking the question, are you willing to let go of the things in your life in order to hold more firmly unto Christ? We're studying 1 Corinthians, and I want to remind us what uh, we started in chapter 8. We're in chapters 8, 9, and 10. Particularly, we're in 9 today, but chapter 8 started a whole new section. And the concept, if you remember chapter 8, it was this kind of very, it didn't make, almost didn't make sense to us at first glance, because Paul was dealing with an issue, particularly to Corinth in the first century. And the issue was, we're Christians, we're living in a pagan society where they oftentimes offer meat on altars. Are we allowed to eat the meat that had previously been offered to a false god that sold in the butcher. Now, to us, in the 21st century, this is like, this has nothing to do with us. And so you read chapter 8, you say, what, th- th- this has nothing to do with me. What do I do with this? But what we discovered is actually the same principles that drove how they would go about making that decision apply to us in the 10,000 decisions we make every day. We're not asking the question, can we eat the meat offered to an idol, at least most of us on a day-to-day basis. But we are asking all sorts of questions about what aspects of culture can I participate in? What aspects of culture that were originally pagan can I redeem? And what aspects of culture do I, do I need to fully just reject? Like, I'm a Christian now, I can't participate in that. And that's a discerning question. That's, Christians should be asking that question every day of their life. And there was one particular guiding principle that we got from chapter 8. And this guides us all the way through chapter 10. It's this. A desperate desire to build others up in Jesus should drive your ethical decision making. That was the principle. You want to know what you should do, what you shouldn't do. Should you go there? Should you watch that movie? Should you listen to that music? Should you wear those clothes? Here's the question. A desperate desire to see others know and love Jesus with greater fervor should drive all those decisions. And if the answer is me wearing these clothes or me going to that movie or me watching whatever, uh, going to that concert does not build others up in Christ, we have our answer. And it's radical. This is a a term that has oftentimes been used is is radical neighboring. Isn't that a fun term? Radical neighboring. How, how, How as a Christian do I have a radical love of those who God has placed in my life? Well, today, Paul now builds on chapter eight, and uh, he's gonna do it in a particular way. He's gonna use one simple illustration to prove the point of chapter eight. And the illustration is how he personally handles money. That's his illustration. He says, you you wanna see how to put this in practice? Look at the way I've handled money in my life. The way I've handled my money shows you that I handle my money in such a way that I am driven by a desperate desire to build others up in Jesus Christ. And that dictates everything I do, all right? Big idea for today, if you walk away, you remember just one thing. He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep in order to gain that which he cannot lose. Chapter nine, verses one through two. Kick off this way. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? This is the Apostle Paul speaking. Are not you my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I'm not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. Pause. Very simple setup here. He's building a case, and he just starts off. He's asking a series of rhetorical questions. He says, you know I'm an apostle. That's a sent one. The apostles, there were 12 of them. That's a closed group of people. And they they were essentially... uh, Old Testament prophets in the days of Jesus. It was a new group of people like the Old Testament prophets who were speaking and writing in such a way that they were writing and speaking the very words of Jesus Christ. Closed group of people. They were the apostles. He says, look, not only do you know from the larger community, but you know as evidence from the church that you are, Corinthian church, 
I was with you. You saw me teach. I helped build you, right? He's saying, you know my apostleship. I'm an apostle, says Paul. Then he goes on, verses four to seven. Verses three, this is my defense to the, sorry, starting verse three. This is my defense to those who would examine me. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Notice this right language. Do we not have rights as an apostle to eat and to drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife as do the other apostles and the brother of the Lord and Cephas, that's Peter? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruits? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? Now Paul here is speaking in really plain language. He's not trying to bulldoze them. Sometimes when you read Paul's letters, you realize that people used to speak to each other much more directly than we do. <laughs> we're, we're a very soft culture. Paul is just put, making a very direct, just clear point. He says, look, everybody knows if you work, you should get paid for the work you do. This is not rocket science. And he says, there are certain rights that as an apostle we should have, that we're free to. Peter was an apostle and he has a wife and he's pointed to the fact that as an apostle, Paul, he didn't bring a wife with him. And he's already talked about in previous chapters of 1 Corinthians how as a single man, Paul was able to do a whole lot more ministry. He could have had a wife, but he chose not to for the purposes of what his labor was. Didn't make him more or less right in any way. It's just what he chose to do for the sake of the kingdom. And then he transitions into this conversation around earning money and earning the kind of work you've done, right? He's he's essentially saying, I labored among you. Basic principle, I have a right to get paid for the work that I've done among you. That's his principle. And it's a simple principle. This is, in fact, is a biblical principle, which is exactly where he goes next. Verses 8 to 11. He says, do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same thing? For it's written in the law of Moses. Now he's quoting Moses from the Old Testament. The law says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out its grain. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher should thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do we not even more? This is a fascinating little study. For those of you who are interested in how the Old Testament law should be applied in our New Testament days, Paul's essentially showing us right here. He's not saying that the law did not mean what the law actually said. The law was a very particular law in an agricultural society that uh, we are to take care of the animals that God's entrusted to us to, to labor. So when you have an ox and he's working for you and he's plowing your fields, don't muzzle him. Meaning make sure you feed him. Take care of the animals. It's part of the dominion mandate that was given to Adam all the way back in the book of Genesis to tend to the animals that were part of Eden at the time. And and the Mosaic law affirmed that. When you put animals to work, make sure you treat them well. Make sure you feed them properly. That's something important that Christians should do. But Paul then looks at it and says, underneath that law, there's actually a deeper principle. And it's that you should earn the earn for what the work you put in. For animals, make sure you feed them. They've earned their, their meal. And as a worker, you earn the work you put in. Now, these principles are very common. In fact, they're so common because of Christianity. Christianity came along and said, when a worker works, he should get paid appropriately for the work that he puts in. We haven't always gotten this right. In fact, many days. In fact, oftentimes, if you look back particularly on the issues of slavery, where workers were not getting paid for, this is an example where when Christians participated in slavery, they were going against what the Bible commanded them to do, 
to pay people for the work that they put in in appropriate ways for the work they were doing. But Christians, it was then Christians who then came along, recognized this gap that was existing in the life of the church as a whole, and said, well, we got to put an end to slavery because this is not living out a number of the laws, this being one of them. So Christians worked towards that, but the basic principle is so commonplace in society that Paul asks it in a rhetorical way. Shouldn't everyone get paid for what they do? Now, what's the point here? Paul is actually using quite American language, if we can say that. Now, not that he knew what America was. There was no America in the days of Paul, right? But the language is very individualistic, isn't it? He's making a point. Can I get paid for what I do? I have that right. He's an apostle. He planted the church. He works as hard as anybody else there. American Christians, when we tend to think of our rights, the buck, pun intended, normally stops right there, (laughs) okay? The buck stops there. We think of our rights, what we can do, what our freedoms are, and then in light of that, we begin to build a lifestyle around what the gospel permits us to do. And here's the sweet thing about following Jesus is that there's a lot of freedom in following Christ, we're freed from a number of the Old Testament laws, particularly the ceremonial laws, right? And we're freed to actually, in a lot of different ways, in a lot of different areas, live very diverse lives, right? All bound together under Christ, but we're not necessarily yoked under very particular cultural norms or cultural ways. This is why the church can thrive in every country around the globe. From culture to culture, you'll find churches in very different ways because there's freedom in how you do these things. And yet, and yet, It doesn't end just with what your freedoms are. But American Christians tend to hold on to that as where the story stops. I have a right to a wife, says Paul. I have a right to a paycheck, says Paul. And for the American church, oftentimes, that's where the story starts. And so we take our rights. But Paul moves forward from there. The next section, he essentially starts with what Jim Elliott said, was he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep. Paul, Paul actively chooses to give up his rights. Read to us. Read with us 9, 12 to 15. He says this. Nevertheless, we've not made use of this right, speaking specifically of his right to get a paycheck from the Corinthian church. We've not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. That should be reminding you of language from chapter 8 when he was talking about, I would do nothing to put an obstacle in front of anyone's faith. Verse 13, do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. Now, Paul's work, Paul's work was hard, it was difficult, he was laboring among them, and his simple point is, we should get paid for the work that we've done. Yet there's a deeper principle than his right here. The principle is that his deepest desire is to honor God and not put a stumbling block before anybody else. And so here he is, he's a man, he's working hard. Food's not easy to come by in those days, right? It's a different environment than what it is right now. And he looks at the church, he says, I'm going without a paycheck from you. And the reason I'm going without a paycheck from you is I don't want to put a stumbling block in front of anybody. This is radical neighboring. He loves them so much and he's recognized that in this particular scenario, if he were to take a paycheck from them, somehow that would, that would hinder the gospel's clarity in people's lives. What would be the effect on everybody else if they saw me take this paycheck? Now, 
Why, why would that have been a, an obstacle? Well, we know that actually this was not his case all the time. He took money from other churches. We read about that in the New Testament. In fact, while he was in Corinth, he was writing to other churches who were financially supporting him. Okay, so he has no problem. There are rights and he's getting paid for the work he's doing. And he affirms that that's how it's supposed to work. I can think of a number of scenarios where for some reason it would have been wise to not take a paycheck. Maybe there were a group of false preachers in the area who everyone knew they were just in it to make the money. And they were flashy with their money. They were flaunting it everywhere. And now Paul, the apostle Paul comes in with the right heart, but he's being perceived as one of them. See that? I don't know if that's what happened, but I can imagine in that scenario, the Apostle Paul getting to Corinth and being like, look, okay, I'm examining the situation here. I'm not even gonna take a paycheck. Let's just cut through that real quickly. It's not worth it. Why would it not be worth it? Because his heart's driven by one thing. It's not, his rights are you gotta eat and you're working, so take a paycheck. But his drive is, I don't wanna put a stumbling block before anybody. And this is what's amazing. Maybe, maybe there were some in the church who had been so burned by previous, by previous people who they had trusted, who, who had taken their money, but, but then had made some mistakes with it, had floundered it, and now he's getting to know this early, this new, new Testament church, and he sees, man, this money situation is just, it's hurting them. I don't want to be, I don't, I don't, I need to show them that the gospel is able to heal this. I need to show them that the, the gospel of Jesus Christ is able to heal their hearts that have been wounded by those who have harmed them because of money issues and that there are such a thing as respectable, respectable, respectable biblical leaders. So I'm just not gonna take a paycheck. See, I can think of some scenarios here. I don't know what they were, but I can think of a handful of them. But at the end of the day, he says, I'm not gonna take my right. I'm gonna lay it down. And I'm going to live a different way. I'm going to radically neighbor this church. Verse 15 is very powerful. I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. What's his boasting? Well, he's not boasting in himself. In fact, he gets to that language a little later on where he says, you know, I don't boast in myself. He's, he's boasting in the work Jesus Christ is doing building his church. Now, let's just pause here for a quick second. We're going to talk about money in a moment. I think there's a first move we need to talk about. In, in the modern church, the church that, that I pastor here, there is, a, there is a way to live in this city where we have blinders on to the bigger picture. And from time to time, a text will confront us that, that asks us, are we prioritizing all of life the right way? A, a lot of the aspects of our life are very important. The different structures and, and spheres of our life are important. Is a job important? You bet. It was Christians thinking Christianly who developed capitalism. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, just to put it bluntly, that's how it worked. It was Christians who were looking, how can we make a free market, a society that works with the most amount of justice? That doesn't mean it's a perfect system, but that's how it got written up, was Christians thinking, how do we put this into place? There's nothing necessarily wrong with jobs. There's nothing necessarily wrong with earning money. But, but Paul confronts us here and he says, okay, in all of those spheres, your business, your hobbies, your family, your schools, your commentary on, on judicial cases. You look at all of it. Is your primary drive, is the gospel of Jesus Christ going forward? And if the answer is, that's kind of a secondary or tertiary issue, this passage is confronting you head on. If the primary answer is, actually, I'm, 
I really am, I'm, I'm building my, my world. And, and I'm, I'm mostly focused on my business and my work and my paycheck and, and the things I got going on in front of me. This passage confronts us and says, look up. There's a much bigger thing going on here. And in reality, Christ is building his kingdom. And if you're a Christian, you're an ambassador for Christ. That's your primary driving motivator. And if you can get that, then we can have conversations about money because it'll change the way we handle our money. Jesus taught a lot about money. Money, money is a sensitive subject in the church and I really have uh, no, uh, no, nothing hindering me, to be honest with you, from speaking very clearly on what Jesus says about money and financial management. Money is a sensitive subject. I think for a, a good reason though, a lot of churches have failed a lot of Christians when it comes to money management. We, we've looked and we've seen Christians or we've seen churches and institutions that we're supposed to trust just floundering and squandering money. And I think what's happened is to a modern church, it's kind of made Christians a little gun shy on trusting institutions, organizations, even the church with money. But, and, and that is just a tragedy. That's the kind of tragedy that corporately as a church, we need, to, we need to solve so that we can make sure that the church, God's church, this church and the many churches that are faithful in this city can together say, this is not just the most trustworthy place, but this is kingdom work. This is where your money gets put in, in such a powerful way. You're seeing lives changed by it. Jesus taught on money all the time. Jesus says this in Luke 16. No servant can serve two masters. This is powerful language. No servant can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other or he, he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. And then the very next thing he does, he looks at the Pharisees, who are the religious leaders of the day, verse 14, the Pharisees who were lovers of money. Isn't that interesting? He's standing in front of the religious leaders of his day, and he says, hey, you, you can't serve God and money. And they were the religious elite. They were the ones that had their act together. Money is, uh, in our culture, th there's a handful of idols that bubble to the top. We're talking about idolatry, Right? Can you eat meat offered to idols? In our day, in America, there, there's idols all over the place. And idolatry is a common theme that we pick up on regularly. Idolatry is anything that captures your heart, your mind, your will. It drives you. It's a motivator. And that motivation of that thing in your life is, is more serious, a stronger motivator than your love and motivation of Christ. Anything. Even good things in your life can be idols. A spouse can be an idol. Children can be an idol. Jobs can be an idol. Those are wonderful things, all of them. But when, when, you're, when your affections and your thinking power and your, and your effort and your energy is, is more driven by these things than it is to this, then you're a slave to this. And, and the Christians constantly going back and, and asking, no, all of those spheres of life need to be submitted and find their right under order underneath the lordship of Jesus in my life. As Christians, we, we, we have a number of kind of primary, um, as humans, we have a number of kind of primary needs just to be alive. These primary kind of psychological needs, if you will. We have the need to be known. We have the need to be approved. We have the need to be safe and secure. These are like base level human needs. We gotta take care of these things to be known, to, to be approved, to be safe and secure. Money as an idol it promises it's gonna answer all of those things for you. This is why it's so powerful. This is why people, when you get a taste of money, you start wanting more and more of it. It's like a drug. And then you can't stop it. Why? Because it tells you you can have all of those things. It's an idol. It's promising you life, but we all know the story is that 
you know, you get enough money and then you're just, you're bankrupt. Your soul is bankrupt. It promises that you can be known. Have enough money, have enough money, accumulate enough. And by the way, you'll never be there no matter how much you have, right? You're always gonna need a little more to get there, but it says you'll be known. People are gonna wanna know you. You'll be able to throw parties that are meaningful. You'll be able to rub shoulders with the right people because they'll be interested in your money. You'll, 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 have, you'll have some kind of value to other people simply by the number of zeros on your bank account. And if we're really honest, our culture affirms that in a lot of ways. That's actually, I, I've, I've heard conversations like that where they talk about someone and it's like, oh, that, that's a high net worth individual. That's kind of like a, like make sure, you know, like, like, like maybe there's some opportunities there. To be approved, that's a, deep, that's a deep thing. To be approved, what does that mean? That people see you and validate you. That's, that's an inner desire of the human experience. They say, your life is meaningful, you contribute, I see you, yes, I affirm you. Money promises that, doesn't it? You get enough of it, and people don't just wanna know you, but they wanna flatter you. And, and false flattering goes a long ways because we settle for it even when we know it's false flattery. And that's how, that's how corrupt sin is in our life. We know it, we still like it. Ooh. And so, and so money, you accumulate enough of it and enough people will false flatter you that you can just, you can live a, a false reality, but it's enough to pass the time. And you know what? It's not that bad. You can be approved. What about to be safe and secure? Well, of course, money can get you everything you need. You can build the biggest fence around your home. You can buy the nicest alarm system. You can buy the safest car. You can have insurance for your insurance policies. And, 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 money, and, and money promises you, look, even, even when natural disasters come, isn't this amazing? Who are you gonna trust when natural disaster strikes? I mean, this is, this is beyond, beyond any human control. You can't fight nature. Who are you gonna trust when natural disaster strikes? You're gonna trust your insurance policy. You better have a good one. Hopefully you got the flood, the flood add-on, right? Those who own homes know what the flood add-on is really expensive. It's hard, okay? But, but all of a sudden you realize, I'm trusting in money. Are these things wrong? No, is insurance a terrible thing? No, it's not a terrible thing. But notice how quickly all of a sudden I'm trusting in things that money bought me as an idol. It's promising to be known. It's promising to be approved. It's promising you'll be safe and secure. There was a philosopher, Friedrich Nietzsche, an atheist philosopher many years ago, and he, uh, he, he had such insight, such great insight into the atheistic worldview. He critiqued Christianity, but he also critiqued modern atheism as he saw it. And he said this, what induces one man to use false weights? What induces a man to use false weights? Another to set his house on fire after having insured it for more than its value, while three-fourths of our upper classes indulge in legalized fraud. He's asking, what induces all of this? What gives rise to all of this? It is not real want, for their existence is by no means precarious, but they are urged on day and night by a terrible impatience at seeing their wealth pile up so slowly and by an equal, equally terrible longing and love for these heaps of gold. What once was done for the love of God is now done for the love of money, for the love of that which at present affords us the highest feeling of power and good conscience. Nietzsche, as an atheist, is pinpointing exactly what I'm trying to say as a Christian pastor. It is very easy to replace all the things God's supposed to provide in your life in a real way with money. And once you get a little bit of it, 
it's very easy to just need a little bit more and a little bit more. And like a drug, it suddenly takes over until you are in full-on idolatry. And we're hindering the work of God. Now, what, what's the point here? Paul's trying to make this point of he's, he's willingly giving up a paycheck. He, he made this crazy, radical neighboring decision. I'm, I'm not going to live by my rights because I'm driven by a different motivation. And so I'm going I'm to give up the right to a paycheck. I'm not going to demand that of you, even though I should get it. And he goes on, verses 15 to 18. Now he gets this other half of Jim Elliott's quote. I'm going to give this up. Why? Because <laughs> there's greater gain on the other side. That's why. There's far greater gain on the other side. He says in verses 15 to 18 this, but I've made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any provision. I'm not trying to blame you and say, now I want money. For I would rather die than have any, anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting. We'll have to work that one a little bit. For necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. But if not of my own will, I'm still entrusted with a stewardship. What then, what then is my reward? That in preaching, I may present the gospel free of charge so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. He talks about this reward language. He, he, saw, he saw his not taking a paycheck as part of his reward. It's not even just what he's going to get in heaven. He actually saw giving up his rights to receive money as part of his reward because he understood the gospel fully. This is remarkable gospel language. This is a man who's been so changed by the gospel. Keep in mind who Paul is. Paul had a 180 degree turn in his life. This was a man who, he was on the upwardly mobile track for success. Trained under Gamaliel, one of the most important rabbis in Jewish history. Personally trained by him. He was, he was like the number one rookie. That's who he was. The number one rookie in Israel for religious studies. The Apostle Paul. He was entrusted with persecuting the early New Testament church. He was, a, he was a religious guy of the religious elite. And then he met Jesus on the road to Damascus. And, and he realized that if Jesus is truly risen from the grave, then everything must be different. If, if it's not just a story, but if he rose physically from the grave, that validates everything ever, he ever said. And he claimed to be Lord. He said he was the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through him. That is it. And if he's raised from the dead, then my whole life must be different. I cannot stay on the track I was on. I'm no longer looking to be the number one. I'm no longer trying to get this success in what everyone around me said was success. I'm, I have to have my life dictated by his lordship, by his kingdom and what he's doing. And he became the Apostle Paul and he began to plant churches and, and he made this passion of his to see everyone around him come to know Jesus in the same saving way he had come to know Christ. Because Paul was a murderer. <laughs> That's what he was doing. He was persecuting people. And if God for, could forgive a guy like Paul because of what Jesus did on the cross for him, then he could forgive everybody. And so Paul was this guy who went from church to church, city to city, saying, I want you to know the love of God, that it's so good, it's so right, and I don't want to put any obstacle in your way. Whatever it is, I'm not putting that in your way because that's my pr the highest priority. See, church, if we capture what Paul's got going in his heart, this church changes real quickly. This church mobilizes real quickly. See, Jesus, Jesus meets those deepest needs, and Paul knew that well. Jesus shows you what it means to be fully known and fully loved. Because when you confront Jesus, you're confronting the Lord of all. He sees everything. There's nothing that's hidden from Jesus, says the scriptures. You're fully known. You cannot put a veneer on 
You can't just settle for false flattery. God does not false flatter you. You are exposed. And, and, and when you're exposed before him, he sees your motivations, he sees your heart, he sees what, what you fooled everyone else with, what you fooled me with. And he says this, if your faith is in Jesus, not only are you fully known, but you're so loved that, that, that this love could never be taken away from you. You see that? You're so loved because of what Christ has done for you that he approves of you because of who Christ is and your faith in Christ. Because he approves in Christ, that approval gets transferred to you. It can't be taken away. There, there's no more false flattery. And now that, that builds a security and a stability in your life. Because no matter what comes, you're fully known, fully loved for all eternity. What, what other false security do you need? Everything else just feels like trifles on the side when you compare the security you have in Christ. In fact, the word we use is eternal security. That's a theological term. It means that once Christ got a hold of you, nothing you could ever do will separate you from his love. You can't. There's nothing that can happen to you. Perfectly secure. Amen. Thank you. <laughs> you don't have to apologize for clapping. Let's summarize this for a second. There is a principle that has to drive Christians. And it has to be more than what are my rights and what are my freedoms. We're Americans. We love rights and freedoms. And they're not bad. They're endowed on us because of our God. That's the founding, right? They're endowed by God, our creator. And yet the buck doesn't stop there. We need to learn to release our rights and our freedoms in order to be driven by a deeper love of people. And when it comes to our money, this is what's confronting us today. Let me give us some practical advice. Practical tips. There's nothing wrong. In fact, there's everything good with wise money management and working hard for a paycheck. In fact, that's the first half of this whole passage. Earn money. Work hard. Christian, you're working in the workforce. You should be the hardest worker in your office. Get there a little early. Pray over the cubicles. Pray over the offices of your bosses when they're not looking. And you know what? God will open up doors for you to have an impact in that place. Look for ways to establish prayer meetings. And if your boss won't let you do that, pray quietly and silently because your God hears those prayers and he does amazing work through them, okay? And, and, and while you're there, make a living. Save, read the book of Proverbs. If you need good godly advice on how to manage your money, the book of Proverbs is a great place to start. Tons of advice in there on how to handle your money faithfully, wisely, as a good steward. Everything we have is from God. Whether you have very little or very much, both were given to us by God. The question is, what do you do with it? How do we live faithfully with this? Secondly, learn to be radically generous till it hurts. Till it really hurts. Remember the rich young ruler. He, uh, he couldn't do it. And most of us, probably myself included, maybe couldn't do it either. That's, that's, a hard one to, that's a hard pill to swallow. I don't know what happened to that guy. But, but I know this. If that's my story today, I don't want it to be my story tomorrow. And, and, I, and I, what I want to foster in this church is this radical ge generosity. The kind of radical generosity that, 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 that looks like Paul that says, I don't need it. I, the Lord provides for me. And he does. The kind of radical generosity that stretches you in ways that you're very uncomfortable with. This, there's a thousand opportunities. I can give you specific examples of how to do this. Maybe, maybe I'll give a couple, but, but you, have, you have opportunities in front of you. What would it mean for you 
to re-budget your budget to, in order to intentionally live on less in order to give more towards God's work, both formally and, or, and organically. Formally through the work of the church and organically in your work of just being a radical loving neighbor. Like really, what would it, go, what would it mean to go to the drawing board and say, we make X amount. Right now we've quadrated this much for charitable giving. What if we did this? Okay, well, we have to cut back. Are you willing to cut back? Isn't that this passage? Are you willing to cut back? And if the answer is, no, I'm not willing, you better have a good conversation with God on that. That doesn't mean, that there's extremes here that would be unhealthy. I'm asking hard, poignant questions from the text of myself, first and foremost. Third, prioritize your local church. Why? That's what Paul's talking about. He's speaking to a local congregation. He's speaking to a local church that he loves. It's a community just like this. It might not even been much bigger than this. In fact, it might have been smaller than this community. And he's looking at them and he's saying, I love you so much. I, I, I want the financial situation in here to be so healthy and right that I'm, I'm modifying how I in, interact with this in order for this to be built correctly. Local, prioritize this place. The work God is doing through this church, day in, day out, the, where this money goes to, it, this is remarkable work that's happening. And if you want to know more, find out more. If trust has been broken, make sure you build that back up quickly. Don't let that, don't let that linger. Let the Lord heal that. Let me close with a quick story. This week, there's someone from our church, amazing story, uh, and I heard this uh, just quickly, secondarily, and, and you guys in this room who this is part of, uh, you might not even know I'm sharing this story, but it's you. Um, there was a, a family who's uh, loving on another family in the city. Uh, there was a family who needed, who, who needed some things for their home. They just needed furniture. They needed uh, you know, brooms and things like that to take care of them. And it was a family that someone from our church had gotten in touch with, and they saw the need, and they said, hey, we're a church. We can gather all of this. We, we can get a van and, and, and get all the stuff we need. There's gotta be some extra furniture laying around the homes of church like this. Certainly there was. And a number of people got together and, and, and spent an afternoon doing this very sacrificially. And then I heard one, one wonderful story of a one young man from our church who, who was getting ready to give, uh, to give something extra he had in his home. I can get rid of this. And then the Lord brought a, convict, a conviction to him. He said, why am I giving leftovers? This person deserves new. And then went, went, went to the store and, and bought brand new stuff. What a story. What a challenge to us. For a culture, for a, for a people that have garages of extra stuff. It's not everybody, but it's a lot of folks. We've got garages of extra stuff. What, what, what would it mean to be radically generous. And then what would it mean to be that early New Testament church where there wasn't a need in the community? And can I just be honest? Every need in this community that, that comes to the church, we take care of. That, that is something that happens. We are, we are on it. We are fervent. Our deacons are amazing. They're stepping in caring and there are needs in the church and we care financially. Everything gets taken care of, but, but what would it mean to just not give leftovers? What would it mean to step in and give brand new? See, this is where church gets real fun. This is where the Holy Spirit starts to take off. This is where churches begin to figure out that there's something to this Holy Spirit that's going on and there's something to the gospel because it changes the way you live. This is radical neighboring. 
This is a love for others that is driven by, I want to see the kingdom built and I don't want to do anything to put a barrier in anyone's way. He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. Pray with me. Actually, you know what we're going to do? We're going to pray, but we're going to do this a little differently. Let me invite you to stand up. My sense is there's one of two ways to receive this. One is pastors preaching on money, and I hope that's not what you do. (laughs) The other is Holy Spirit's got something to say, and it's to each of us individually. Um, I want to create a space right now. The band's going to play two songs of worship to finish our service. And as they play, I'd like to create an environment of prayer. Um, And here's what this will look like. I'm going to kick us off in prayer. And then I'm going to invite you to pray fervently before God. Now for you, that might look like singing as loud as you can these worship songs. For some of you, that might mean getting out of your seat and going somewhere else, finding a space in here to just be alone with God. We do this occasionally where we take a time in the service to kind of disrupt the, the status quo of how church is supposed to be done in our formal lines and to just say, let's pray Let's pray as if God really responded to us. Let's pray right here and right now before things change and we get distracted by the cares of this world. <clears throat> and so the band's gonna play behind me and I'm gonna invite you. And, and, and if I can give some particulars, if, if you're a husband that's here with your wife, take this moment right now to put your hand over your wife's shoulder and pray with them fervently. And ask the Lord, Lord, reveal to us as a family, are we doing this well? And if you are, if he affirms what you're doing, say, God, thank you for that grace in our life. That's my boast, Lord, not in me, but in the, in the work of God working through me like Paul. And if you're here, can I just invite you, take this time to pray. Feel free to pray out loud. The band's gonna play loud enough, you're not gonna hear your neighbor. Pray out loud. If you came here with a group of friends, pray with them. As you're led, you can say amen, sing along. If you sing along the whole time, that's great. But let's make this a house of prayer for a few minutes here right now. I don't wanna let the moment pass before good repentance work and receiving the gospel is done. So I'm gonna pray. Then I'm gonna say, church, pray. And as you're led, join us in worship. Pray however you're led. Jesus, we love you. Lord, this is a hard message to receive, but God, when we think about radical neighboring the way Paul was a radical neighbor, we want that. That's the kind of Christianity we want. We don't want to settle for false flattery. We don't want to settle for idolatry. We don't want want to settle for a church that, you know, just gets enough of the gospel to not take any risks. God forbid we miss out on all the joy. Jesus, I pray for conviction in this room right now by the power of the Spirit, not a conviction that condemns, but a conviction that transforms because the gospel is at work and alive. Right now it is. I believe that. And so, Jesus, would you have your way with us? Wherever we're off, wherever I'm off, transformed by the power of Jesus risen from the grave. I pray for a prayerful spirit. Holy Spirit, we're yours. In Christ's name. Church. Pray as you're led.